Peter is at the very end of his life. And he has, he's, he's addressing um, here in this passage the elders of these churches in Asia Minor, churches he probably helped begin some 20 or 30 years prior to this. And obviously, Peter has a ton of street cred when it comes to speaking to younger pastors, to younger ministers, to younger elders. Um, Two things he says about himself right in this first verse I want to point out to you. First, he alludes to the fact that he's an apostle. Now, he's already stated that up front in verse 1 of chapter 1, but here he alludes to it again in chapter 5, verse 1. He says that he reminds us he is a witness to the sufferings and to the glory of Christ. In other words, Peter was there on the night Jesus was betrayed. Jesus, uh, Peter was there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter was there when Jesus was dragged before the Sanhedrin for that illegal council meeting in the middle of the night. We don't know where he was the day of the crucifixion. Maybe he was watching from a distance. We're not sure. But Peter was an eyewitness, make no mistake. But Peter was also there, just as importantly, for Jesus' resurrection. He, he remember even before the resurrection, he saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, saw Jesus' glory fully revealed, and of course saw Jesus in his glory as he was raised from the dead. Now, why is that significant? Because Peter's again reminding us that he is an authorized apostle and representative of Jesus himself. Peter is not just giving us his take on spiritual leadership in the church. Jesus is, Peter's just not kind of sort of giving his blog posts of the hour. He is an authorized, commissioned, appointed representative of Jesus Christ. And what he tells us in this passage about spiritual leadership in the church, make no mistake, it's not just for the first century. It's not for the second century. It is for the church all time until the Lord Jesus comes back. This is not useful tips for church leadership. In other words, Put the Bible up and your favorite book on leadership and your favorite book on pastoral ministry and favorite book on the church, and they all sort of form this commoderation of stuff. No, no, no. Peter is reminding us, I'm going to give you the instructions that Jesus gave me. And that means they're binding for us. And he's given us what we need in the Bible to know what we need to know about what ministry and leadership should look like in the church. So Peter reminds us of that. But the second thing he reminds us, and I just think this is where the accent is for this particular passage. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 5. He reminds them, he says, first of all, men, I am a fellow elder. A fellow elder. I want you to remember where Peter began his ministry life. Peter began his ministry life as a fisherman, a humble fisherman. He was an elder in the church in Jerusalem after Jesus ascended into heaven. And and the reason that this is so important that Peter is, is kind of coming alongside the church and putting his arm around them and speaking these sage words at the end of his life is that in 21st century terms, remember who Peter was. If Peter was alive today writing this, we would say, well, Peter, I mean, he's an evangelical rock star, right? He's a leader of leaders. He's a conference speaker. He's headed up a church planting network. He's been a lot of been to a lot of important councils. In fact, did you hear that Peter is working on two books of his own? First and second Peter, did you hear about that? Right? 
See, we, we would tend to want to elevate Peter and, and, and put him up on this pedestal, but Peter, listen, church, at the very end of his life, he never lost sight about his fundamental call. He was just a shepherd. He was just someone who was called to love and care for God's people. And if you want to know, I don't think this is the only factor at play, obviously, but when you hear of various theological, pastoral ministry leaders going off the rails or falling into sin or doctrinal error or maybe even outright apostasy so many times... It begins at the place of aspiring to be something more than what God has called men of the, of le- as leaders of the local church to be, and that's just simply a shepherd, simply a servant, to be content with the calling that God has given. And make no mistake, there are many shepherd teachers in the world that God has elevated and given special uh, ministry platforms to, but those who were faithful to the end— those who did not fall away were those who had the hearts of a pastor and elder. Now, before we dive into the text, one thing that you need to note about this is that this is not merely some exhortations for spiritual leaders or elders in the church. Remember that when Peter wrote this letter, it was to be read publicly to all the churches. And so the church would be gathered very much in a situation like this, in a context like this, and the letter would be read, and, and people who were in the church were hearing these exhortations given to these spiritual leaders because, as we're going to see, there is a mutual accountability in the life of the church with leadership. See, see it's not merely that the, that the elders are responsible for the people or that the people are responsible to entrust themselves to their elders. It's that there is to be, as we see here in this passage, a mutual submission into our respective roles. That we're to hold one another accountable for those sorts of things. It's why the elder leadership is, is not an oligarchy at Forks. It's why there is a fundamental accountability to the Word of God primarily, but then to you, the people, as you affirm and pray for and encourage your leadership. And so this is for all of us, and there's four questions that I think Peter, uh, we're going to ask that I think kind of emerge from the text, and here they are. Why is Peter writing to the elders here, or why is he writing to the leaders who exactly is he writing to? What, what is an elder? Who, what are they called to do? What is he, third, third question, what is he telling them to do? And fourth, how is he telling them to do it? That's our four questions. Let me pray for us and ask God's grace as we're in his word this morning. Lord Jesus, in a culture, in a society that is often suspicious of leadership, and for good reason, who is often suspicious of authority, oftentimes for good reason. Lord, you've given us the gift of leadership. And Lord, we want to arrange our lives accordingly to it. Lord, all of us are called to positions of spiritual leadership in some sphere of our lives. And so, Lord, this morning, give us ears to hear. Help us to be able to extract the principles that would apply themselves to our own life. And, Lord, we do pray for Four Oaks this season. 
Lord, we want to be faithful in this. We want to, we want to do this right. We want to be an, a blessing and a witness to your glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ, particularly this season, Lord. As, a, as the world is watching, so Lord, would you give us your grace in Jesus' name? Amen. Dive in. Why is Peter writing? First of all, I want you to note where in this letter this particular section falls. You see, it's right here at the end, and that's significant. Because what, and we saw this last week, what has Peter been talking and writing to the church about? Their fiery trials, right? As to heat up a furnace. They are, they are going through it. There has been a massive disruption in their lives, as many have, does this sound familiar, lost their jobs, been scorned publicly, businesses shut down, some of them even thrown into prison, a few probably maybe even martyred, killed for their faith. And the church is just sort of waiting for this season to pass by, and Peter's like, no, 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 it's not going to pass you by. This is, this is the norm for the Christian life this side of eternity. There is, this is your normal church. And so with their gospel witness being threatened and the church in a precarious position, Peter issues an exhortation. Peter issues a command. Look in verse 1. There is an urgency. There is a, there is a it's like the, the military leader giving his troops a charge, and he gives the charge to the elders of the church when he tells them, I exhort the elders among you, I charge you. I charge you, this is serious business, church. Shepherd the flock of God. See, the reason this is particularly crucial in that context is that the crisis that the church was walking through was exposing all sorts, right, of what I would call spiritual fault lines. And that's what crises always do, crises. They, they expose issues, problems, things that were probably always already there, but you just couldn't see them. You just didn't notice them. They were, they were sort of flying under the radar. But when they are exposed in a crisis, guess what? They have to be dealt with. They have to be dealt with. You see, crises create vacuums. And someone or something will speak into that void, into that vacuum will fill those spaces and and peter is exhorting the spiritual leaders of the church don't be passive don't hang back don't shirk don't don't hide behind your position of authority no no no. you were called to move forward boldly graciously humbly but boldly into the breach now this week I don't know why I was doing this, but I was reading something about Niagara Falls. Just a quick show of hands. How many of you have been to Niagara Falls? Okay, a few, quite a few of you. Um, it's a pretty stunning spectacle. I haven't been. I probably will catch that one in the new heavens and the new earth. You know what I mean. But I don't know if you know this, but I read this this week. The Niagara Falls were actually turned off, quote-unquote, in 1969. It was dry as a bone. See, what had been happening over a year since it had been discovered, well, I say discovered, it, all, it had been there for a long time, but to when North American settlers discovered it, 
is that over time, the flow of the river had, had decreased a little bit. And there was erosion along the river as different companies and people were, were drawing water off of the river, and it was impacting the falls. And they knew there was some problems brewing under the surface, but they didn't know exactly what. And they wanted to go in and try to fix this. And so they built a dam, and they shut the water off, and the things that they discovered, okay, by the falls, under the falls, in the falls, once they had turned the water off, so to speak, really astounded them. They were, I mean, besides all the souvenirs and all those sorts of things that have fallen over the falls over the years, they learned an incredible amount about erosion and the rocks and the ecosystem and how it was all put together, and they were able to kind of deal with the infrastructure to preserve the falls as we know them now. But it took, understand something, a crisis, symptoms that had bubbled to the surface to reveal what was really going on underneath. Let me ask you a question, church. What spiritual fault lines are being exposed in your life this season? I don't say, are they being exposed, because we all have them. I'm asking, what are they? What have you learned about what you really value? What have you learned that is of super importance to you? That you, that you maybe have were vaguely aware of, but in this season, because that thing is taken away or because that thing is threatened or because that thing is not there anymore, it's, it's created this, this yearning, this stirring in your heart. Maybe it's an idol. Maybe it's a misplaced love. Maybe there's something being exposed this season that's really good. That's like, man, I'm, I'm missing this particular thing because God made me for this particular thing and it's not here, or at least not here in the way that it was. It's those kind of questions, church, that your elders, your shepherds have been wrestling through this season. It's some of the ones we want to talk about tonight. It's why we're doing that. We're asking God, what are you exposing about us? What are you, not, not the world, Okay, the world's always being exposed. The world is going to world. But God says, no, 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 I, I'm interested, church, because remember what we saw last week, judgment begins where? The household of God. And that's not a judgment of condemnation. It's a judgment of grace. And it may not feel super gracious at the time. Oh, but it's for our good. And so God, we're asking, what is that? Show us that. We want to lean into that. That's why Peter is writing. They're facing a similar situation, even more dire than we can imagine. Number two, who exactly are these spiritual leaders that Peter is writing to? Look at verse one. He calls them, of course, elders. And it's probably helpful for us to do just a very, very brief excursus on leadership in the church in the New Testament. We have always have new folks coming in. We have folks watching from online. So many of you, I, I kind of say Four Oaks is kind of like we're a theological, well, hopefully not theological, we're, we're, a, we're a church mutt, right? We come from a whole host of different backgrounds, okay? And I don't know what they called leaders in your church when you were growing up, or maybe the church you were at previous to this. Maybe they called them elders. Maybe they called them pastors. Maybe they called them apostles. Maybe they called them bishops. There's deacons. There's all this nomenclature. But, but, but 
I want to try to distill this down as simply as we can, that in the New Testament, there seem to be three terms that are used synonymously and interchangeably. We see this, in, for example, in Acts 20, for spiritual leaders. And you'll see the scripture writers reference them and interchange them depending upon the context. And those words are presbyteros, from which we get the word Presbyterian, episkopos, in which we get the word episcopal, and poimano, which we get the word pastor or shepherd. And so anytime you see the word elders or overseers or pastors, they're all referring probably to a slightly different function of what a spiritual leader is, but all captured under the umbrella that Peter uses here, which is elder. It was based upon the Old Testament synagogue model of leadership, and the apostle says this was a biblical model, it's a faithful model, and we're going to find out why, and we want to incorporate that into the leadership of the church. So, so stay with me here for a second. When Jesus gave the Great Commission to the apostles, the original disciples in Matthew 28, he told them to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the world, all the nations. And so what you see is the apostles scattered to the four winds. You have Thomas going to India, church tradition tells us. You have Paul going to the Gentiles. You have Peter going to the Jews. You have um, other you have Thomas going to, did I say India? You have other apostles going into Africa. They're scattering everywhere. And what, here's what they're doing. They're planting churches. They're establishing gospel witnesses. But what would happen is that after a season, these apostles would move on after planting a church to go plant another church in another area. And then they would entrust the leadership of these local churches they planted to elders. So Titus 1.5, here's an example. So, so Paul's writing to Titus. Paul's planted the church in Crete. This is what he tells Titus. This is why I left you in Crete, Titus, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. These are the spiritual leaders. These are the, these are the people that Peter is addressing here. And understand something, and, and, and church history shows us that the church has had a lot of differing opinions about church governance and how it should work, but we see from the earliest time of church history in the documents of the New Testament itself that never was a singular leader established as an elder of a congregation. In other words, the authority as a shepherd, leader, bishop was never vested in one singular man. Now, you may come from a denominational or church history or background in which that would be the case. But what we see here is when Peter exhorts the leaders, he exhorts the leaders plural. Isn't it interesting that even 20 years after Peter helped establish these churches, and as he is writing to them, these five churches in Cappadocia and Asia Minor, all of them have what we call a plurality of elders. That means that authority, power, was never invested in one singular person, and here's why. There, there's a ton of great reasons. Let me just list a couple for you. One, there's safety in numbers. When you 
diversify leadership or authority among a group of people versus locating it in a singular person, you limit the influence that that one single person can exert. Now, I want you to understand something. When we get to heaven, there'll be a singular leadership, King Jesus, okay? We will not be sharing in the leadership in a plurality, okay? We will be joyfully submitting to his leadership. But this side of heaven, we are sinful people. Have you noticed what happens when authority gets vested in a very few or a singular person and that person becomes isolated and unaccountable? That usually works out well, doesn't it? Never, right? Never. This is, now, this is not a foolproof, okay? Um, means we know that groups of leaders can go rogue, but again, it's part of the safety, for the safety and the protection of the local body that God says, I give leadership to a group of men. Now, a second reason is because it takes a group, a plurality, to really shepherd the people of God. There, the, the, there, it takes a plurality for there to be a spiritual division of labor. Oftentimes in a traditional context where authority is focused, the spotlight is focused, the care is focused on that one singular person, only that leader can speak to me, only that leader can deal with my issue, only that leader can deal with my problem, only that leader can preach, only that leader can make decisions... No wonder, right, in those sorts of denominational backgrounds that pastoral tenure life is very, very short, right? And so here at Four Oaks, we have what we call a council of elders. It's 13, 14 men, elders, four of which are set aside for full-time vocational ministry. We call them pastors. But in our polity or in our church structure, pastors are elders, elders are pastors. And one way to say it is that when you join Four Oaks, you don't get one pastor, four pastors, you get 13 or 14 pastors. That's the biblical word. That's the biblical concept. Now, we recognize that because of gifting and time with a church this size, it's very appropriate for the elders to say, you know, we're going to set aside a few of those among us to commit themselves, dedicate themselves full-time, vocationally, that the church will support for the teaching ministry and and day-to-day shepherding needs of the church. But in actuality, see, our our elders are not a board. They They are not like old dudes emeritus. Some of them are old dudes, right? But they're old. They're not. They're not emeritus, like just walking around making decisions about this, that, and the other. Coming together for board meetings. No, no, no. They are shepherds, which brings us to our third point. What is he telling them to do? Now, this is. If you want to like perk your ears up, this is the central heart of this text. The central command all flows out of what he exhorts them to do in verse 2 when he tells them, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now, when when we ask, where in the world did Peter get this metaphor or analogy of shepherding? Where, Where did that come from? Well, obviously, it came from the Old Testament. It's all over the place. Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, But if you were here with us in the series as we went through John, the book of John, 
in the very last chapter of that book, and when Jesus is restoring Peter after Peter's betrayal. And remember, this, these are the last things Jesus told him. Think about that if you're Peter. These are going to be ringing in your ears. He says, Peter, do you love me? Three times. And what is Peter's response? You, you know that I do, Lord. And then what does Jesus say to him? Feed my sheep. We know exactly where Peter got this metaphor, and the other apostles as well. I say all that to say shepherding, please understand this, is not a subset of what elders are called to do. In other words, if I could create the perfect elder or I could create the perfect pastor, and he's going to be like a little bit of a CEO, he's going to be a little bit of a change agent, He's going to be a little bit of a, of a spiritual entrepreneur. He's going to be visionary, okay? He's going to be kind. In other words, he's got to be Jesus, right? Okay. But, but, but give him, just let him be a little bit of a shepherd, right? Let, let him be all those things. That's not what the scriptures say. Although there's, there's, there's kernels of truth in, in all those different roles, shepherding, please understand this, church, is the totality of what an elder is and what he is called to do. Now, most of us, the closest we've ever gotten to sheep is that petting zoo out at the Four Oaks Family Christmas, right? And then parents, what did you do? You took your kids home and immediately dunked them in the giant tub of hand sanitizer, right? Because it was dirty and filthy and all those sorts of things. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about sheep. It's not going to be the primary focus here. But there's essentially four things a shepherd did that are paralleled, I mean, a physical shepherd, that a spiritual shepherd in the church does, and, and totally dependent upon Alexander Strzok here, biblical eldership. There's, there's four things that a, that, a, that a physical shepherd does that are mirrored or paralleled by the spiritual shepherds of the church, and let me run through them quickly. The first and we see it here in the text, is to lead, okay? See, a lot of times we have a domesticated view of a shepherd, just holding that little sheep, just petting that little guy, little lamb, right? Carry him around with us, Jesus, gentle, mild. And I think you're going to see that, that that sort of stereotype is sort of blown up here when we understand what Peter is calling the leaders to do. Number, number, first of all, he's asked, he tells them to lead. Look at verse 2. When he says, shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight. Now that word, exercising oversight, episkopoi, okay, made up of two words. One is the idea of scope, okay, and you shouldn't recognize that. It's where we get our English term telescope or microscope. It means to look at something intently, to examine in a close-up way, to take something that is small and enlarge it, or to take something that's large and shrink it, we want to look at it and get the full perspective of that. Now, epi always fuels, highlights, puts an exclamation point on whatever it modifies. And here's essentially what Peter is saying. Elders, you have full responsibility for this flock. Full responsibility. 
And it is your job to get the big picture. It is your job to look ahead. It is your job to know what is going on in the life of your church. It is your job to get the full perspective of a thing, to examine closely, to study. Now, doesn't that sound interesting? Remember what Peter exhorted husbands to do? Husbands, live with your wives in a wise and understanding way. You can't love your wives unless you know them, draw them out. This is is exactly the same idea that Peter is getting at here. In other words, the elders are responsible for leading the church to somewhere. Where are we going? What are we doing? Why are we doing it? It means elders have to know, I'm going to use this phrase, what time it is in the church. And you may say, well, Pastor Paul, it's almost 12, and aren't we about done? Well, just hold tight, right? <laughs> what time is it? Like, what's going on? What's, what's, are we just sort of like drifting through this life, laissez-faire? That's not what shepherds do. Now, John MacArthur, who actually visited a sheep farm, of course, he did in New Zealand years ago, talks about this idea that's a misconception, by the way, that sheep are dumb. Okay? He said, that's, that's really not true. Sheep, it would be more accurate to say, just lack directional awareness. So if you think about this for a second, a lot of you, you know, you could, like if I, if I were to put you at your house and say, you get yourself to Dope Campbell Stadium and back home, you could do that, okay, probably. But for some of you, if you, some of you are shaking your head and I agree, but some of you, like if you dropped you into the middle of Tallahassee at random, you would have no idea where you are. And all the people that I'm speaking of, you know exactly who you are, right? You couldn't get home. You couldn't get to Dope Campbell. You've got your GPS. That's, that's where you go. Well, that's the way sheep are. As long as they have their little domain, as long as they are, things are predictable, there's, my, there's where I eat, and that's where I sleep, and that's where I drink my water, they're all good. But if you were to take a sheep and pick it up and plop it down even as close as one-tenth of a mile away, it would have no idea to get back. Shepherds have to lead. Number two, shepherds have to care. Okay, so look, look back at verse two. Peter tells them, shepherd the flock among you. In other words, that literally means in the midst of. Pastors and elders cannot shepherd from a distance. You can't shepherd from a distance. You, th- this is why, as awesome as the technology is right now, okay, and for those who can't be here to join in, I mean, praise God for it, this is not the way things were intended to be. And this will, this will not bear the weight of our spiritual lives forever. And that's what we want to talk about tonight. But shepherds are hands-on workers. Another thing I learned about sheep this week, and I'm going to really try to keep this at the PG version. Can we do that, right? Sheep have this oil on their bodies that they secrete a lot of, and because of that, they can get very filthy. In fact, they're kind of like walking Velcro. You ever notice that with a sheep? Sticks, mud, dirt, insects. They can get infections on their bodies. And guess what? Sheep are not like cats. They can't clean themselves. 
There, got it? Is it a good enough picture? So who gets to do it? Not the other sheep, right? <laughs> it's the shepherd. Now, there's this misnomer, and this is so prevalent in pastoral circles, that you can be a shepherd because the motif is so obvious. It's like you can't say you're not a shepherd, but you don't have to necessarily like or love people. So in other words, you, oftentimes you hear among leaders, I'm into leadership. I'm into teaching. I'm into writing. I'm into theology. People, meh, not so much. Just go be a motivational speaker. Just go, go, go do something else. But that's not an elder. That's not a pastor. It's, it's, it's why when we ask God, who are Where's your spirit moving this season to say you're setting aside this man to be a spiritual leader? It's not merely does he run a great business? Is he great with the books? Okay, Does he have influence in the community? Fundamental qualification beyond the character qualifications. Does he love people? Now understand something. All of us have different gifts. All of us, that, that is expressed and comes out in different ways. But there cannot be a a disdain for the people that the elder is called to lead. How are you involved, we ask an elder, in people's lives? Whether that's meetings or prayer or counseling or hospitality in your home or community groups. And again, there's so much variety and grace there. But the, the, the issue is not if you're involved with people, it's where. And so shepherds care. Number three, let me keep working through these. Shepherds protect. So another thing I found out about sheep is that when they are, oh, this is, this is, this is awesome. No, not awesome for the sheep, but when they're threatened, okay, and they're being attacked by vicious wolves or whatever, not only do they not run away, they all sort of group together as if to give a bigger target. It's pretty cool, isn't it? And this is why Paul says in Acts 20 to the elders, there's going to be ravenous wolves that come into your church. And they are here to shred the flock. And they are out to get what is theirs. And this is why, and this comes from a pastor friend of mine in Tennessee, when he says, one of the primary jobs and protection for an elder in a church is patrol the perimeter, Right? There has to be a Holy Spirit-filled, sanctified toughness. A Holy Spirit-sanctified, and I want to say meanness, but you get what I'm going at it, right? There has to be a thick skin. What are our theological guardrails? What's our statement of faith, our distinctives? In other words, you just don't roll the ball out there like the six-period PE teacher and say, go for it, I'll see you in an hour, right? You say, God, what, what are we teaching? What are we putting before our people? What, what are we studying? Lord, we don't want to be like the judges. Remember the judges? In that day, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It sounds great for an individualistic age. It is spiritual suicide. And so the elders are called to protect in their most fundamental tool, now listen, this gets to our fourth 
Fourth thing that elders do, and this is the one upon which everything else hinges on. It's the first among equals of all these things. The shepherd is called to feed. Peter, feed my sheep. At the end of the day, if a sheep doesn't live, doesn't eat, I'm sorry, it doesn't live. It's the most basic life function it's the sin qua non. It's the without which there is none. And that's why a local church, which is always imperfect, right? Always imperfect, always full of sin, always full of issues. But when there is a strong feeding ministry of the church, and, and I'm not just speaking about preaching through the scriptures on a Sunday morning, but it's not less than that. I'm talking about the Word of God integrated into every, law, every aspect of the church in Bible study, in community groups, in counseling, in coffees, in student ministries, in children's ministries, in our re-engaged marriage ministries, all of it saturated in the Word of God. When that is present, it will cover a multitude of other issues. It will. Because it is the most foundational aspect of what a shepherd is called to do. That's why the one qualification beyond the character qualifications that an elder must possess that distinguishes him from other positions of leadership in the church is that he must be able, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 3, be able to teach. Now that doesn't mean that he has to be a persuasive speaker. It doesn't mean that he, ha- he, he can be gifted behind a pulpit or to teach a Sunday school class. It just simply means that that man, whether he is in public or private, can bring forth the word of God to bear. That he can articulate biblical truth. That he can sit down with someone in a counseling situation or a community group or a coffee or a dinner and minister the word of God. Church, remember, every church is feeding its people something. A church cannot not be fed. The question is, is with what? The shepherd is called to feed. How is he telling them to do it? We're going to run through these really quickly and we'll be done. Here we go. Stay with me. We're almost done. Number two, first, how is he telling them to do it? First, do it locally. What do we mean by that? Verse two, shepherd the flock among you. In other words, God has a big flock of sheep. Every Christian who's been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, purchased by the blood of Christ, who's lived past, present, or future. What we have here at Four Oaks, for example, is just a little subset of the flock, right? And God has said, elders, I don't want you to worry about that church, that ministry, that thing, don't, that you're not responsible for that ultimately. The thing you are most responsible for is this little flock of sheep I've given you here at Four Oaks. And the way that we define this for ourselves, by the way, is through membership. If you want to know, like, well, who, who is the flock? Well, it's the people who've covenanted themselves to the church, and it's, these are in turn the people we've covenanted ourselves with. This might be a great season as you've sort of evaluated your relationship to the church and realize, I don't know if I'm really a part of the flock. I mean, I come, you know, and I'm kind of peripherally engaged and involved, but have I really entrusted myself 
to the shepherds of the church? Do they know who I am? We'll have an opportunity for you to pursue that in the coming weeks by God's grace. Number two, they are to do it voluntarily. Look at verse two. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Why is that important? That shepherds not minister out of mere duty or obligation? Wives, put yourself in this position. It's your anniversary. Your husband shows up with something awesome, some great gift. He knows you. He's taken the time to do this. And you tell them, why did you do this for me? Or, Or how did you know? And wives, what if he was to say, why did I do this? Because I knew you were going to be mad if I didn't, right? Okay, how's that going to work, right? And try again next year. Wrong answer, right? That's not meaningful. That's terrible. That's degrading. That's dishonoring. This is why Peter's saying men are not to serve under compulsion because they're obligated, because they're duty-bound. There has to be a godly ambition igniting their hearts. Now, there can be a selfish ambition. That's why he warns them on the other side not for gain. And that could be financial gain. It could be for power, status, reputation, because it's good for my business in the community. And, And Peter's saying none of that. It's all about a godly ambition to lay your life down for the sheep. So it has to be voluntarily. Number three, submissively. And this one is particularly important. And by submissively, I'm talking about the shepherds to the Lord Jesus and to their church. Look at what Paul says in, in, um, Peter says here in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of what? God. It's a genitive, it's possessive, it literally means God's flock, God's people, God's church. Let me just say something that I just, I can't, I can't weather, I can't stand, I don't, I completely discourage it. When people look at a church and say, oh, you know what, that's so-and-so's church, as in the name of the lead pastor. Oh, yeah, that, that's, that's Paul Gilbert's church. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's Bob Evans' church. Oh, yeah, that's Dean and Sarah's church. I don't like it. It's not good. It, it denotes that this is some kind of business organization that men have improper ownership to. Totally false. This is God's church, and look at verse 4. He is the chief shepherd, which means the writer of Hebrews says, one day, church, your elders will give a spiritual account for how we shepherded. And I don't think that's just like a neat pat on the head. I think that's like a real accounting. How did you do? Were you faithful? Did you feed? Did you care? Did you protect? Did you lead? Which means, please hear me loud and clear, Unless your leaders are also sheep, which they are, unless they are also tethered to the chief shepherd, unless they too are living a life submitted by the authority of God's word. See, this is not our book. This is the chief shepherd's book. And he's given this to his under shepherds who are really just stinky sheep too. And said, use this and lead, but this is not your flock. This is my flock. And I'm going to come back one day. There's all kind of parables about this, right? And I'm going to say, did you faithfully do this? And so that means that the church leadership must be submissive to the chief 
shepherd, which means that your submission or entrusting yourself to the shepherds of your church is always, always, always hinged and conditional upon that reality. And the day me or anyone else or any other leader in this church leads you someplace that you know to be in opposition to the will of God, no matter how well-intended, no matter how culturally palpable, you will find another pastor. Number four, and we're done, humbly. See, Peter ends with a charge here for all of us, elders, pastors, and sheep, and people, to humble ourselves, to clothe ourselves in humility. To not domineer. That's his charge to elders. Don't domineer. Don't act like you're something. Don't act like this is yours. Don't act like the people are obligated to you. No, 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 no. You're just a steward. You're just a tool. You're just an instrument. You're just, you're just a sheep too. So walk in that. And then it says, yours will be the crown of glory. Now, I don't have time to get into all this, but let me just say this, what I think this is. I don't think this is a literal crown. But when we look in the book of Revelation and we see this idea of crown, remember, what is a crown? It re, it, a crown brings honor and glory to the, thing, to the person who wears it, right? What does John tell us we're going to do in heaven with our quote-unquote crowns one day? We're going to cast them down. We're going to throw them down. Why? Because they're not ours. They're only entrusted to us for a time, these lives of ours, to reflect and bring honor and glory to God. Which means he's just exhorting these elders to eternal reward. Eternal perspective. Just know one day, elders, and this may be hard in this life, and you may never see the fruit of your labors, and you may never see what I'm ultimately going to do, but one day you will, and it will be to my glory. Because the reason that we are the sheep of God, the, she- the, 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 the flock of God, is because the great shepherd put away his staff, and he became a sheep for us. The lamb laid down his life for the stinky sheep, the pure spotless lamb who had done nothing, but had only upheld righteousness in his mouth, and he laid his life down so that we who were sheep, dirty, stinky sheep, can now be a part of the flock of God by his grace. And let's celebrate that today. Let's pray.